Well, Happy New Year, church. It's a great delight to be here with you as God's redeemed in His honor to worship Him and to hear from Him. I'd like to direct your attention to John chapter 15, and we will just be considering verse 7. At least that will be our springboard today as we consider God's Word, John 15, verse 7. You'll find that on page 901 in the Pew Bible. We'll be all over the Gospel of John today, and so I hope God will bless us in our time in His Word. John 15, verse 7. Hear now the Word of God. If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Our Father, we're thankful for this great and amazing promise that our Lord has offered to us. We're thankful that we can consider it and unfold it and contemplate what it means for us here in 2016. Father, we pray today that your word would come in in power and bear great fruit in our lives. The Lord Jesus would pray to you, Thousands of years ago, sanctify them in truth. Your word is true. We echo the prayer of our Lord today that you would indeed sanctify us through your word, that we might be made more like Jesus for our great gain and for your glory, we pray in his name. Amen. A favorite author of mine, D.A. Carson, in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, begins this book and he asks this question. He says, what is the most urgent need in the church of the Western world today? And so he wonders, what need do we have? And he begins in the beginning of his book to survey the various options. He asks, is, is our greatest need sexual purity? He says, we have lived, as you know, in a culture obsessed with sexuality and even the, the once accepted boundaries are now continually redefined. But the church is not spared from this, Carson writes. He, in fact, he quotes a study that reveals that in America, 40% of evangelical teenagers under the age of 18, 40% have engaged in premarital sex. So he says this is in the church. In fact, he, he writes, the directors of several mission boards have quietly mentioned to me that they have had to deal with more problems of sexual immorality among missionaries during the past five years than the previous 50 years combined. Maybe the greatest need in the church in the Western world today is financial integrity and generosity, Carson wonders. He writes, of course, greed characterizes every culture in this fallen world, but the raw worship of mammon has become so bold, so outrageous, so pervasive in the Western world during the last 10 years that many of us are willing to do almost anything, including sacrificing our children, provided we can buy more. Or maybe the need that we have that is the greatest in the Western church is better and more effective methods of evangelism when only 3% of those who make a decision for Christ and revival meetings persist with Christ five years later, or when the increase in all these megachurches that dot our land, when the growth of these churches is not accompanied by an increase in holiness, perhaps we need better evangelism. And Carson goes on to survey other options, but he concludes in not dismissing any of these uh, needs, but he does say there is a sense in which these urgent needs are merely symptomatic of a far more serious lack. The one thing we most urgently need in Western Christianity is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. Now, when Carson writes that, he's not saying that we need to know who God is better or even necessarily that we need to understand more facts about God. He's saying that the need in the church today in the Western world is that you and I would know God personally, that we would know God deeply, 
And knowing Him and being in a relationship with Him would begin to transform our lives. As Carson writes, so much of our religion is packaged to address felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of our own happiness and fulfillment. God simply has become a great being who meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations. We think rather little of what He is like, what He expects of us, and what He seeks in us. I think Carson is spot on. I think he is absolutely right. I think the greatest need, not only in Western Christianity, but I would suggest to you that the greatest need in Hamilton Baptist Church is that you and I, as members of this covenant community, would know God more personally, more deeply, more intimately. And so what we are going to do as we begin this new year is we are today going to consider how it is that we can come to know God. We're going to consider today we know Him through His revelation. That is His Word. And next week we're going to consider how we can know God through prayer. I think the Word of God and prayer to God sets the foundation of knowing God. Now there are other ways in which we know God. We experience God and fellowship with God through ministry, through sacrifice, through suffering, through worship, and other ways. But the foundation of our relationship with God is that we would understand Him through His Word and respond to Him through prayer. And so I want to start 2016 by working on our foundation, if you will. And my goal, my hope, in fact, I, I think God's goal I think God's hope for Hamilton Baptist Church is that we would come in 2016 to know God more faithfully and truly through His Word. That we would grow in reading His Word and listening to His Word and being taught His Word and meditating on His Word and discussing His Word and memorizing His Word and struggling with His Word and celebrating His Word. And even beyond that, that God would grow us and that we would be devoted to knowing Jesus through prayer, private prayer and small group prayer and congregational prayer and fasting and prayer and adoring prayer and repenting prayer and requesting prayer and healing prayer and that we would come and abound in our understanding of God as we pursue Him through His appointed means, not so that we might pat ourselves on the back and say, aren't we good and great? Aren't we faithful Christians? But rather that we would find our delight is increasingly in the God who has made us for Himself. That we would delight in Him, desire to glorify Him, that we would want to know Him more faithfully. And so my goal, what we're going to do this week and next week, if God is willing, is we're going to just consider this one verse, John 15 and verse 7. You, in fact, I would even suggest that you might even commit it to memory. It's a, a simple verse. It really has two parts to it. He begins by saying, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's the first part. That's what we're going to consider today. The word of God abiding in us. Next, he moves on to prayer and says, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. And so we'll consider next week prayer. These are going to, by the way, just to let you know, kind of footnote in the message, these are topical sermons. I rarely preach a topical sermon. Usually I just take a passage and explain it and apply it to our lives. Instead, I'm going to take a topic and we're just going to consider that topic and try to apply it to our lives. I've also have been greatly benefited in my understanding of how the word and prayer interact in my life by the ministry of John Piper. And so I just want to recommend him to you. His book, by the way, When I Don't Desire God, was fundamental in my life, especially in these ideas. And uh, you would be greatly helped by him far more than I trust I can help you. And so let's consider here John 15, verse 7. He says here, Abide in me and my word, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now you may be aware that John 15 is this famous metaphor in which Jesus identifies himself as the vine and you and I as the branches. And we are to stay as the branches connected to the vine if we want to live, if we want to flourish, if we want to bear fruit, right? We need to be connected to the vine. Or as Jesus puts it, you need to abide abide in him. In fact, Jesus will use this word abide 11 times in 13 verses here in John 15. And so very, it must be very important for him as we kind of understand how it is that we stay connected to Jesus. The word abide simply means to stay near or to dwell with. And Jesus, I think, in saying abide in me and I'll abide in you, he's saying to us that we stay with him and that we continue with him. And if you will, we make our dwelling
dwelling with Jesus, we're constantly relying and pursuing and remaining connected with Christ. You might ask, well, how is it we do that? Well, I think he tells us here in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's, it's very similar to what he said in verse 4. Look up in John fifteen four, Abide in me and I in you, right? So abide in me, I in you. Verse 7, he says, abide in me. And rather than saying, and I in you, as he did in verse 4, he says, and my words in you. And so, in other words, I think what Jesus is telling us is that he abides in us when we let his words abide in us. When we let his words dwell in us and make their home in us. This seems to me how Jesus lived his life. He let the word of God abide in him, did he not? Is he not constantly, you read the Gospels, is Jesus not constantly say, do you know it is written and you have heard that it is said and he is constantly bringing out scripture from his own heart which he has committed to memory. Even uh, when he is there in the Gethsemane and the soldiers come to arrest him with sticks and clubs and swords and Peter draws out his sword and he's there standing between Jesus and those who would arrest him and, and, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put away your sword. Do you not know that in an instant I could call 12 legions of angels here to defend me, but how then would the scripture be fulfilled? Right? In other words, he is about to be arrested and driven away to be executed by an angry mob. And what is on his heart but the word of God? Even as he's parading with a lacerated back through the streets of Jerusalem with his cross upon his shoulders, he sees women weeping and he looks to them and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourself, for it is written. And he quotes the prophet Hosea. Even when he hangs upon the cross, as he cries out in despair, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Certainly that is a cry of anguish in his soul, but it's also a direct quote from Psalm 22. You see, Jesus abided in God by allowing the word of God to abide in him. And I would suggest to you that if we, uh, we should do likewise, we should abide with Jesus, we should know Jesus by letting his words abide in us. So I would like to consider with you this morning 16 reasons for 2016 to let the word of God abide in you. So yes, that is a 16-point sermon. And all we've done is the introduction, by the way, so we haven't really started. So one of my New Year's resolutions is to preach longer sermons. So (laughs) Happy New Year. Uh, We're going for 16 points today with a 10-point application. Uh, The point, however, is not for you to memorize all 16 points, okay? It's not to leave here and say, what was point number 11? You know, that's not the point. The, The idea is to latch onto a couple of these. Find the ones that motivate you to pursue God through His Word. All right? Some will go quick. Some will go slower. So uh, don't, don't use your watch to figure this out. We'll get through in time. Trust me. All right? Number one, let the Word of God abide in you as, the living, as living words. I want you to understand when you read and consider the Word of God, you are not simply considering the words of some ancient teacher long gone. When you are memorizing the Bible, and I hope you do, you are not memorizing it like you would memorize facts and dates for a history exam. The words are coming to you from a living person. The one who has given us this word is alive. This is why the Bible says in 1 Peter, this is the living word of God. Or in Hebrews 4, the word of God is living. It is not that the Bible is alive. Your Bible is not, you, know, you, don't, you don't feed it and it doesn't sleep at night. It's, the Bible's not alive, but the words come from one who is. Jesus is alive and he continues to speak to you through his word. It's how we fellowship with him. It's how we interact with him. We let him speak to us through scripture. And so when you read the word, you should intentionally remind yourself that this word is coming to us from a God who is speaking to us. For instance, my wife and I have been reading the book of Hosea at night before we go to bed. And I read the scripture to her and then we spend some time in prayer together before 
before we sleep. And a little while ago, we read in Hosea 3, for instance, they shall come in fear of the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so we read that not as just some ancient word from a dead prophet, but the living word from a living God. And we responded to him by thanking God that the wayward will return to him and thanking him that we are the wayward have returned to him and asking him to help us to recognize his goodness or places where we could fear him more faithfully. You see, when the word abides in us, we hear it as if one is speaking to us, one who loves you more than anyone in this world, the living God. Let me show you the opposite of this. Turn over to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is an interesting passage in when Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. And by the way, the Pharisees read the Bible far more than you and I do. Some of them have the entire Old Testament memorized. These are people, we don't have people like the Pharisees anymore who knew the Word of God. And Jesus is aware of this. In fact, in John chapter 5 and verse 39, He says to them, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that, and it is they that bear witness to Me. Now much can be said about this passage, but simply I want you to know that Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees. He is not criticizing them because they don't read the Scripture. He is criticizing them because they are missing the point of Scripture. He's saying you study the Scripture because that in it you think you have eternal life. Now, he's not saying you're studying the Scripture because you're trying to find out in the Scripture how to get eternal life. He is saying instead, when you come to the Scripture and you study it, you think God is pleased with you for studying it, and therefore God is going to favor you by giving you eternal life. That God is very pleased, you read His Word, and therefore God is going to bless you, right? You're going to make God proud of you. I I mention this because this is what many people do when they read the Bible. They open the Bible perhaps early in the morning. Maybe they get up 10 minutes before they normally do just to spend time in the Bible and they finish their Bible reading and they just think, you know, aren't I good? And they're very happy with themselves that they read the Bible this morning. And I I want to encourage you, if you read the Bible that way just to earn God's favor, you're not meeting with Jesus. You're simply easing your conscience. This is not to read the Bible to ease your conscience. It is read the Bible because Jesus is going to speak to you. He wants to come and teach you. The Word of God is living. Secondly, let the Word of God abide in you as astonishing words. Turn over to John 7 if you might. This is another interaction with Jesus and the Pharisee. It's interesting to me. The Pharisees are finding Jesus threatening by this time. And so they decide we need to arrest this fellow. And so they send a, a whole legion of police officers to go arrest him in John 7. Unfortunately for the Pharisees, the officers returned back to the Pharisees, but they come without Jesus. They did not arrest him. And it's not because Jesus zapped one of them or because Jesus has better bodyguards. It came back with Jesus because his teaching was so astonishing. Look in John 7, verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this. We, w- we went to arrest him, but we listened to him, and we thought, we can't arrest someone who speaks like this. Right? They were astonished by his words. They thought, what a gift is his teaching. They're right. No one ever spoke like this. The- these words abiding in us come as astonishing words. Number three, let the word of God abide in you as joy-giving words. Find your way back to John chapter. 15. Of course, in verse 7, our text that's kind of launching us this morning, we see that the Word of God is to abide in us. But Jesus continues to speak about His Word in verse 11 of John 15. He says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So you see this. Jesus wants you to be joyful. In fact, He wants you to be more than joyful. He wants your joy to be full, which is why He has given you His Word, right? He has given your word, His Word to you to be a source of stable and abounding and triumphant joy in your life. In fact, this seems to be the universal testimony throughout Scripture. The psalmist declares, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I find delight in your commandments, which I love 
Jeremiah 15, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. So you understand this, friends, when Jesus tells you to read the word of God or when a pastor occasionally stands up and says, we need to read the word of God, we are not telling you to take your medicine. We are not saying, I know it's unpleasant, but it's good for you, so do it anyways. Christ is not telling you to take your medicine. He's telling you to eat ice cream, right? He's telling you to have a big, juicy, bloody steak or a hot, steaming cup of black coffee, right? Or he's telling you to drink honey. It is the delight to your soul, the Bible says. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The Bible comes to give us joy. In fact, the scripture constantly refers to itself as a source of delight. That word is also used in the book of Esther to describe that uh, the delight a man finds in an attractive woman. Right? If a man delights in a woman, he rearranges his life and his priorities. So suddenly this very busy man has plenty of time to spend with her. Right? The read the word, to abide in the word is no more of a duty to us than it is to spend a time with a beautiful woman whom you love. I think when you're lured away, and we're all lured away from the Bible, and it may be a couple, you know, another 20 minutes of sleep, or it may be something on the TV or something on the computer, you, you would do well to remind yourself, no, no. The Word is going to offer me so much more than than what I'm about to expose myself to or what I'm about to pursue. There's so much more joy. Christ says there's full joy here. Of course, you may object and say, well, listen, you know, I read the Bible and I don't find it delightful. I find it confusing. I find it hard. I find it boring. And, And I don't, by the way, I don't think that should come as a surprise to us. I think the natural man is not going to be naturally inclined to God's word. This is why the psalmist who praised God for his word also prayed to God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We ought to pray to God if we find his word boring and troublesome that God would change your heart. And, and we ought to be active. We ought not to just think the joy is just going to float down from heaven whenever we open. We have to seek God in it. We have to, to question it and to think out its applications and to consider it. The proverb writer says in Proverbs 2, If I call out for insight and raise uh, your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will find the knowledge of God. You see that all the active words there, the aggressive words that we search for it and we seek seek it and we call out for it and we raise our voice for it, right? Pursue God in his word and you will find delight there. Number four, let the word abide in you as authoritative words. You see, when Jesus comes and abides in us through his word, he comes not simply as a silent guest. He comes not as someone who will just tell us pleasant things that we already agree with him. Right? He comes as one with authority. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He comes in us with opinions and preferences and priorities, opinions that matter more than anybody else in our life. Right? If Jesus' word abides in us, then his views abide in us and his commands abide in us and his priorities abide in us. They're authoritative words. Years ago, there was an old Star Trek episode. When uh, Kirk and the, and the fellows, you know, they, every episode they find a new planet and they go down the planet and something new's on the planet. This was the planet of Harry Mud. They called it the planet of Harry Mud because the planet was inhabited, inhabited by one person named Harry Mud. But Harry was not the only uh, I- individual, I guess, on the planet, the only person on the planet, but the, there was Harry Mud and uh, also uh, thousands of robots. And the robots, interestingly, all happen to look like beautiful women who did not wear much clothes. I don't know if you've... Of course, you haven't seen this episode. Quiet down there, Allegra. There's a point to this. All right? Uh, Right? And, and so, and, and then Harry Mudd would, would say to the robots, he would say, you know, he'd give, give one of these robots a command, and she would say, yes, Lord Mudd, or will you go do this? And she would say, yes, sweetheart. And he even made a robot that looked like his wife, right? And he turned her on, and she be, immediately began to nag him, right? Have you seen this episode? Where have you been, Harry? Is that alcohol I smell on your breath, Harry? And he quickly ran over, and he turned her off, and how dare you, 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 you? And she was silent after that. 
right? And so here's Kirk and the fellows with Harry on this planet. And you think Harry was in paradise? You think he was in utter delight when all his commands were obeyed? He's in agony. He couldn't wait to get off that, that planet. In fact, he, he watched the episode. He's gone crazy, right? This is exactly what we times do with Jesus. I only want you to bless me. I only want you to say yes, Stephen, to me. I only want you to affirm what I already believe and what I'm already doing, and I'm going to turn you off when you disagree with me. I'm going to turn you off when you tell me something I don't want to do or tell me how I'm supposed to live my life and I, I don't want to live it. And you say, well, I can't believe, you know, people who claim the name of Christ say, I, I can't believe that God would send someone to hell, and they turn off Jesus when he talks about that. Or I can't believe there's generals in the home, and we're just going to turn off Jesus. Or I, I, I can't believe that God created this world. And listen, if you you won't let Jesus contradict you, if you won't let Jesus offend you, if you won't let Jesus demand you and challenge you, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You just created a robot that does everything you want him to do and you shut him off when he says, you have to carry your cross, cross, cross. Quiet, I don't want to hear that. And you may think that's wonderful. I have a God who just blesses everything I already agree with. And it may be wonderful at first, but you'll go crazy eventually. It's not wonderful. You don't have a, if Jesus is to abide in you, his words come with authority in your life, making demands upon you. Number five, let the word of Jesus abide in you as prayer directing words. John fifteen seven. as we already seen, if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you, will be done for you. I believe the word will change us. We'll begin to love what God loves. We'll begin to pray according to God's will. I think the Word of God is the key to answered prayer. We will consider that extensively, God willing, next week. Number six, let the Word abide in you as wisdom imparting words. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 7, the testimony of the Lord makes the wise simple. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I tell you, friends, wisdom is found in the Word of God. All wisdom is found in the Word of God. And if you want to be a a wise man or woman, you want to be able to impart wisdom to other people, you want to give it to them, you must abide in the Word. Let the Word abide in you. Number seven, let the Word abide in you as Spirit-bringing words. You want to be filled with the Spirit, as the Bible tells us. You want to be gifted by the Spirit and guided by the Spirit and convicted by the Spirit and blessed by the Spirit. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Of course, the answer is hearing. Hearing what? The Word of God. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit who inspired the Word according to 1 Peter chapter 1, He goes where the Word goes. The more you know the Word, the more you love the Word, the more the Word comes into your life, the more you will experience the Spirit of God in you. Number eight, let the Word abide in you as warning words. Psalm 19, verse 10, By your Word is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Now generally people don't want warnings. No one likes warnings. But I'll tell you, a warning can save your life. A warning could save your integrity. A warning could save your marriage. And the Word of God will come and do this work in our hearts. Number nine, let the Word of God abide in you as faith-generating words. The Bible, as you know, perhaps in Romans 10, says faith comes by hearing and hearing through, you know it, the Word of Christ. So the Bible says there will be no faith in Christ apart from the Word of Christ. The Word will come and generate that faith. You cannot have faith unless you have the Word. This is what Jesus taught us when He taught the parable of the soils. And He explained that those along the path, remember the path, are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the Word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Right? Jesus is telling us that the Word is essential to believe, and belief is essential to be saved, and being saved is essential to have eternal life. And if my Word is taken away, if there is no Word, there will be no faith, there will be no salvation, and there will be no eternal life. 
In fact, Jesus taught this in John 6. You might want to turn there. It's an interesting passage in which Jesus' uh, ministry is, 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 um, being, has become very successful. In fact, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. I know some of you children in Sunday school, you learn about the feeding of the 5,000. Well, it's here in John chapter 6 that Jesus has just fed the 5,000. His church has gone from 12 to 5,000, 10,000. It's a mega church. I mean, he is, he, is, he is very, very successful. And then he begins to teach some very hard teaching. And everyone begins to leave him. Look in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so he thought, what about the 12 apostles? Verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Are you all going to leave me as well? The response is given us in the next verse. In verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, is Peter just getting carried away here? Maybe just exaggerating a bit. Well, look what Jesus says in verse 63. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are what? Spirit and life. Jesus is speaking the words of eternal life. If you want eternal life, listen to Jesus. Right? You want to be saved? Listen to Jesus. In fact, you want to know what he taught that sent so many people away? Look in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You want eternal life? He says, you have to feed on me. You have to feed on my flesh. You have to drink my blood. Of course, this is a metaphor to Jesus is referring to his crucifixion where his body will be broken and his blood will be spilled as a payment to a holy God for the sins that you and I have committed. And if you and I want eternal life, we must uh, be so attached to Jesus. It's almost as if we're taking him into our body. We must be so connected to Jesus through faith in order that we may live forever. He says, I will raise him up on the last day. Who drinks my blood has eternal life. You see, friend, we will not receive eternal life by living a good and right life. You will not be saved by being a good person. You must be connected to Christ. You must be drawn to Him. You must place your faith in Him. And you, you may say, well, you know, I, I know you believe that, Pastor, but I, I can't believe that. I don't believe that. Well, I, I wonder, have, have you at least listened to Him? Have you at least considered the evidence? You say, well, God speaks to you evidently, but He doesn't speak to me. Well, have you actually gone to the place where he speaks? Have you actually given him a chance to speak to you? I mean, I, what, if, what if you just, just took this gospel, John 6, and this month, you know, it's what, 21 chapters or something like that? And just for this month, I think it'll probably take you about three hours to read John. For this whole month, you just say, okay, God, if you exist, if you're real, I'm going to sit down and pastor said you speak through your word. I'm, I see you speak to me. And you at least give him an opportunity to talk to you. And he might just generate faith in your heart, just as he did with a notorious criminal in the early 20th century from Japan named Tokiki Ichii. He was a notoriously cruel man, imprisoned 20 different times. One time he beat a prison guard so severely that they took Ichii and they gagged him and they bound him and they suspended him from the ceiling to the point that his big toe barely touched the ground and there in great agony they let him hang and all he had to do was apologize but he went and apologized and so there he hung for hours and days well just prior to the death sentence that Achii received he was given a bible and he began to read the story of Jesus he began to read the gospel of John and other gospels and He saw that Jesus, like him, was arrested and that Jesus, like him, had a trial and that Jesus was to be executed. And he was reading the story of Jesus' execution and he came to the passage where Jesus declares from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Achii explains the impact upon him as he says, I stopped. I was stabbed to the heart as if by a five-inch nail. What did the verse reveal to me? Shall I call it the love of the heart of Christ? Shall I call it compassion? 
I do not know what to call it. I only know that within an unspeakably grateful heart, I believed. You see, the Word generates faith. But it does more than that. It also strengthens faith. Number 10, let the Word abide in you as faith-strengthening words. Jesus Himself has declared in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You want to have strength in your trials. You want to have power over temptation in your life. You want to, to be, be strong in the midst of difficulty and hardship. You need to nourish yourself on the Word of God. So many Christians are spiritually malnourished. And therefore, they're unequipped when trials come upon their life. And they're unequipped when temptations come. And they're easily buffeted. And their joy is easily stolen from them. Deuteronomy 32 says, Take to heart all the words which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. The Word is your very life, the Bible says. In light of that, brothers and sisters, in light of the fact that the Word is a matter of life, will you not let the Word of God abide in you this year? Will you not seek after Him? In fact, this man in Chi'i who was brought to faith through the Word was sustained in his faith by the Word. He was finally sentenced to death. And when he was sentenced to death, he accepted the verdict as, quote, the fair and impartial judgment of God. And he continued to read the Gospels and got into Paul's letters and finally found himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul says, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Chi'i would say, people will say that I must have a very sorrowful heart because I am daily waiting the execution of the death sentence. This is not the case, he said. I feel neither sorrow nor distress. Locked up in a prison cell six feet wide by nine feet long, I am infinitely happier than I was in the days of my sinning when I did not know God. Day and night, I am with Jesus Christ. And that word sustained him all the way to the end in 1913 when he stood on the gallows with a noose around his neck and he was asked for his last words. He declared to all who could hear it, my soul purified today returns to the city of God. You want your faith to be strengthened. Let the word of God abide in you. Number 11, let the word, of, word abide in you as freedom granting words. Turn to John 8 if you like. In John 8, Jesus is speaking about the power of the Word setting us free. He says in John 8 and verse 31, If you abide in my Word, same phrase in John 15, 7, you are truly my disciples, verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, the result of abiding, letting the words of Jesus abide in us is freedom. So freedom for what? Well, look in verse 34. Jesus answered them. Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The freedom that the Word of God will give us is freedom over the sin that plagues us. And so many, so many Christians, I, I trust many of you, have been fighting the same sin now for months and years and maybe even decades. And you have a little bit of victory and then you're pulled right back into it and then you have new resolve and then you're pulled right back into it and on and on the circle goes. And Jesus tells you how to be free. You want freedom of that? He tells you. If my words abide in you, you will be free. Or put it differently in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your, your word is truth. The word will break the power of the deceitful pleasures in your life. It, it will free you. How earnestly, therefore, should you just begin to load the Word of God into your life? As the psalmist says, I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Number 12, let the Word abide in you as sin-exposing words. We are often blind to our sin. 
we often can see, all of us, I think, can see sins in other people far more clearly than we can our own lives. Hebrews 4 says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. The, the Word will discern you, will expose you for your good. Number 13, let the Word abide in you as devil-defeating words. When the devil comes with his lies and accusations into your life, he says, God doesn't love you. You've done too much. God must be punishing you now. God's not good to you. God doesn't care for you. And on and on. And so many of you are besieged by these lies that you think, where are these thoughts coming from? They're coming from your enemy. And the Bible says you have a weapon to fight your enemy with. It is recorded in Ephesians 6, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I think John Piper is right when he says you cannot draw this sword from someone else's scabbard. If you don't wear it, you can't wield it. Right? The Word of God is our weapon. If it does not abide in you, you will be unable to fight back against the lies when the enemy comes and strikes you. This seems to me, in my years of reading Christian biography, the secret of all the great saints that have preceded us, they are all these great spiritual warriors, are all men and women who have saturated themselves with the Word of God. Take, for instance, Hudson Taylor, the great pioneering missionary into inland China, was sustained by the Word of God through his great trouble. His biographer describes him this way. It was not easy for Mr. Taylor in his changeful life to make time for prayer and Bible study, but he knew it was vital. Well, do the writers remember traveling with him month after month in northern China by cart and by wheelbarrow with the poorest of inns at night. Often with only one large room, they would screen off a corner for Mr. Taylor with curtains of some sort, and then after sleep at last had brought some measure of quiet, they would hear a match struck and see the flicker of candlelight, which told that Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible always at hand. From 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he usually gave to the Word and prayer, the time he could be most sure of being undisturbed to wait upon God. Number 14, let the Word abide in you as soul-reviving words. You need personal revival? You feel like you're in a rut? You feel beat down? You feel tired? Let God revive you. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Number 15, let the word abide in you as ministry equipping words. You want to be a source of counsel in people's lives. You want to be able to offer more than a pat on the hand or a disapproving look. You want to be thoroughly equipped for the ministry that comes to you. Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Number 16, let the Word abide in you as eternal words. Jesus Christ Himself in Mark 13 said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Is that not extraordinary? All this, you look out the window, all of that, everything here, all of heaven and earth, he says, one day will be gone. You know what will remain? My word, he says. My word will remain forever. Will you therefore not this year commit yourself to that which will last forever? All the things that you occupy and fill your houses with and drive down the roads with, it will be gone soon. The word will last. What gain we shall receive if we let it abide in our life? In fact, I would humbly like to offer you ten suggestions for how you might abide in the Word. Um, you, you, uh, listen, I, I'm always reluctant to do this because I don't want you to think that if you don't do these things, then, then you're not as good a Christian as the next person. So these are ways that have helped me. You might find other ways to help you, but... Please just use these as suggestions that might help you seek after Jesus, abide with Jesus uh, through His Word. 
I would suggest to you that you ought to schedule your time in God's Word. I, I think so many of us don't know, we don't neglect the Word of God out of sin. We don't neglect the God, Word of God out of distaste. We neglect the Word of God out of poor planning. We just don't schedule it. And, and how many of you keep a schedule? You have a calendar. You know what you're supposed to do today and when you're supposed to do it. Well, schedule your meeting with Jesus. It's an appointment for you. It's like you are meeting with a real person, just like you are with any other person you might meet with that day. Put it on your calendar. This is my, I have a meeting with Jesus at this time. And I, I suggest with you, number second, that you would do it in the morning. I think it's very helpful to start your day with Jesus. It's not the only time I think you should spend with Jesus. But I think if you start your morning with Jesus, you might start your day off a little bit better. You might be equipped for that day. Listen, you go to sleep to restore your body. Sleep does not restore your soul. Jesus will. And do you spend that time letting him restore you in the morning? You start your day. I suggest that you try to do it by yourself, that you find a a place of seclusion, right? You want to be alone because if you read the word of God for any manner of time, you're going to want to respond. You're going to want to talk back to him. And sometimes that includes crying or singing or shouting, right? You're going to want to be able to interact with Him. Listen, if, if you spend time with God's Word and you begin to, to plead for your marriage, you plead for a child, right? you begin to call out for some type of healing in your life, you're going to want to be able to, to speak to Him. I think being alone is helpful for that. And maybe you have to get creative. I, I love the story of John and Charles Wesley's mother, Susanna Wesley, who had 15 children in her house at one time, right? Small house, not mansions like you and I live in, a small house. And every day she would go to the kitchen table and she would take her little Bible and then she would pull the apron over her head, right? And her children, all 15 of them knew that when mama was in her tent, we are to be quiet, right? Sometimes you have to be creative to do that. Uh, Number four, I think you should plan how are you going to read the Word? I think if you just sit down with the Word and think, okay, what am I supposed to do? And I don't know where to go. I, I, I think it's going to feel weak. I think it's going to uh, feel confusing. Uh, confusing. I, I would suggest to you that you, you have a plan, that you maybe pick a book of the Bible and say, I'm going to read this book of the Bible this month. Or I know we have uh, annual Bible reading plans out on the table outside, and you might want to help avail yourself to one of those. Maybe you read the book of Genesis this winter. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Just get in God's Word and have a plan of what you hope to do. Number five, I would suggest that you slow down. Now, uh, I just mentioned these read through the Bible in a year plans, and, and I think those are helpful. I read about every five years, I, I will read through the Bible in that year. But I, to be honest, I find it much more helpful not, not to have this pressure that I have to, okay, I got to get through these five chapters, or I'm 28 chapters behind, and I have to catch up, and I'm just speeding through them. I think, I think quality is far better than quantity. And I, so I would, I would encourage you not to think you have to get through a certain amount of Scripture. Just spend some time with Him and, and think about what you're, you're, you're reading and ask questions and pray about it. In fact, I would suggest, number six, that you keep a journal right beside your Bible and you jot down observations and key words and questions you might have that will help you continue this conversation with God. Or what does this mean? Or do this in my life, God, that you begin to dig deep. Right? Uh, dig, dig down as if you're searching for diamonds, searching for hidden treasure, the psalmist says. Number seven, I think uh, similarly we should meditate on the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I'm going to meditate on it all the day. I love it. You know, it, it, he, he, he's mulling over it. He's questioning it. He's applying it. He's thinking out the implications of it. He's He's chewing on it. He's, he's meditating on God's Word. You know, I mentioned earlier, the Word of God is, is, is not like medicine where you just try to get over it. It's, it's like ice cream. It's something delicious. You're not just taking it in to get the nutrients. You want to savor it. You want it to last. And number eight, memorize the Word of God. Now, whenever I challenge people to memorize the Word of God, uh, if they're going to object, it's always, almost always the same objection. I don't have a good memory, right? Memorization is hard. Now, I would humbly suggest to you, I think that's the lamest excuse I've ever heard. Right? Well, of co- okay, it's hard. I'll grant you that. Okay, you have a bad memory. I'll grant you that. When, when do we ever come to the conclusion that our relationship with God is only supposed to be done with easy activities? 
Right? I just want it to be easy. I'll do whatever with God as long as it's easy for me. But when it becomes hard, then I don't do it. And we don't live our life that way. You do hard things at work, don't you? You don't say to your boss, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that. That's hard. Is there anything easy I could do? Right? You do the hard things. And so, yeah, it's hard. Doing hard things, I tell my children all the time, is actually good for you. And so I would suggest that you do the hard work of memorizing God's Word. And when you do it, it will pay off. It will give you the greatest comfort and the greatest joy and the greatest power and the greatest impact on your prayers. It will shape your thinking and your desires over the weeks and the months. In fact, the psalmist says, day and night, I delight in your Word. He's not taking the Bible with him day and night and reading it constantly. He's putting it in his heart. And then he's mulling over it and thinking about it. And Jesus is constantly talking to him because he's taking the Word and put it into his heart. He has memorized it that God might speak to him throughout the day through his memory. Number nine, community. I I would suggest that you put yourself in fellowship with other Bible-saturated people. Other people who are abiding in the Word, are gleaning insights that they can share with you, that they can apply to you. I would suggest you find those relationships we, we have Sunday school classes and community groups. We live life together with other people who are seeking after God. I would suggest you read great Christian authors. The community doesn't have to be members of this church. They don't even have to be alive. You could Reading a great Christian author is like, it's like reading the Bible through a great lover of God, reading through his eyes. You know, if you read, if you read slowly, if you read about 200 pages a minute, which is, which is a pretty slow pace, and you read... 15 minutes a day, right? If you read 200 words a minute, 15 minutes a day, you will read over a million words this year, which is over about 3,000 pages, 15 books. 15 minutes a day, you'll read 15 books in this year. What great blessing that would be in your life. Every year I start off, I always have a book list. I don't know if you, I don't know if you've listed your books you're going to read this year. I always get excited. I got my books that I'm going to read and I trust God will profit me because of it. Number 10, I just want to return to where we start. Remember. Will you remember that your reading the Bible is not simply some book that is good for you, but it is the revelation of a living God. It is not the words of a dead teacher. He is alive. He is risen. And He wants to speak to you through the Word in which He has given you. Will you not heed the words of the Father who said on the Mount of the Transfiguration, This is my beloved Son. What did He say? Listen to Him. Will you not be like Mary who sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to Him? For His words are your source of joy and life and guidance and wisdom and warning and power and hope and freedom and comfort and security and victory. Listen to Jesus in 2016 like you have never listened to Him before. Our Father, will you please help us to know how we can abide in Your Word, how we can seek Christ and all that He will do in our life by abiding in the Word in which He has given us, that that this will be a, a new year for us in many ways, but profoundly in closeness to Christ. Help Hamilton Baptist Church to know You deeply and personally and intimately by knowing You through Your Word. I pray for my friend here this morning that doesn't know you at all, not even personally, not personally, but, but in no way knows you, maybe knows about you, but there is no relationship. I pray, Father, that you would incline them to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to open the word and I'm going to see what happens, give you an opportunity to speak. I pray, Father, you would speak to them as perhaps this month they open the gospel of John, gospel of Mark or Luke or Matthew. You begin to speak to their hearts and begin to reveal yourself to them in a powerful way that would change their life. Perhaps you're already doing that now, that you're revealing yourself to one. Even now, that you would work in their hearts that they might place their faith in Christ this very moment, calling out to you, I believe in Jesus. I believe He is the crucified and risen Lord, and I surrender my life to Him. Will you remind them, as we speak almost every week, that your Word tells us that whoever uh, confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they will be saved. Will you not save the lost today for your glory and their eternal gain, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.